You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the wintry wonderland of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. It is a chilly December day here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, but we are nice and warm here in the studios of WVMM and ready to bring you episode 16 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. In addition to Drew Durley Hermeling, who you heard at the top of the show, we also have our studio producer and the woman who runs this studio. She's the student (laughs) manager here at WVMM, Michaela Mummert. Michaela, how's your semester wrapping up? You know, my semester is wrapping up pretty well, actually. You know, this week's been pretty busy before finals, some final presentations and that kind of thing. But other than that, I think it's really coming together. It's been a busy semester, but, you know, all the hard work that goes into it, you can kind of see the results at the end of the semester. So that's looking good. (laughs) So next week is exam week. Yes. This week is the last week of class here at Messiah College. Every every student has that one class that's really kind of weighing them down Mm -hmm. as we approach the last week of the semester. Which class is it for you? Or maybe you don't want to tell in hopes that, uh, or or (laughs) out of fear that one of your professors might be listening. But. Um, well, I guess if I had to pick one class, it would probably be my math class that I'm taking for this semester. Math isn't necessarily my strong suit, but I have to take it for my marketing minor as a prereq for another statistics class. So that's probably the one I really need to start really practicing for and really get it together for this final. Yeah, math. I, that's, yeah. that's why I went into history. <laughs> you know, I, I think the last math class I took was like my freshman year of college. Yeah, I haven't you know. thought about it since then. Drew, how about you? Your, your semester's coming to an end, too, in terms of teaching. Yeah, I'm easing into the winter break nicely. Actually, I was guiding my first year seminar through their final research papers. I was just meeting right before we came in the studio with a few of my students talking about their research and the kinds of questions and concerns they have as they wrap up their final drafts. But I'm very pleased with how well everything's turning out. They, I, I don't think it is necessarily a reflection on instruction, but I, I have <laughs> to say the students are doing some really, really good work. And I think that bodes well. I think they're going to do great things as they move on through their academic careers. But I'm also trying to settle on some syllabus details. I'm teaching in the in, in January my my upper division Native American cultures class. So that's that's a lot of fun. I actually really enjoy preparing for that. Yeah, good, good. Students in my American Revolution class actually have a big paper due on Thursday. So got a lot of them coming in. We're mostly talking about footnotes, which in my opinion are much more important in the so-called age of Trump perhaps than they were before. Maybe they're not as important today, but they're they're much more needed. Absolutely. I, I, I have the exact same battle with my students and we had a conversation today in class about uh, the kinds of websites that are citable and the kinds of websites you should probably leave leave out of your paper. Don't cite Wikipedia. No. Right? Well, don't cite a lot of things. Yeah. Well, how about your fall? My fall was crazy. 
you know, we I had speaking engagements, a lot of speaking engagements to promote my book on the American Bible Society, the Bible Cause, and then the revised edition of Was America Founded as a Christian Nation came out. So there was some speaking to do on that and book promotion. And then my daughter, who's a freshman at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, actually broke into the starting lineup on the women's volleyball team that won the NCAA Division Three National Championship this year. So that was a lot of fun, although a lot of traveling to Grand Rapids. And then we actually had to go to Oshkosh, Wisconsin for the championship. But it was all worth it. I am looking forward to the break, though. If you enjoy this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast or have enjoyed past episodes, please help us keep the podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast on iTunes. We are also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here. So stay tuned very soon for more details in a future episode. So, Drew, what do we have on tap today? Episode 16 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Well, today we're talking about abolition, which I guess we could think of as the other side of the coin with our Civil War episode that dropped just a few weeks ago. We're extremely honored to have a distinguished author on the subject, Manisha Sinha, the James L. and Shirley A. Draper Chair of Early American History at the University of Connecticut. And I'm just going to jump in here real quick because I am very pleased to have a Yukon Husky here on the show because I would be remiss if I didn't mention that my mother-in-law is the single most devoted fan of Yukon women's basketball in the entire world. We were visiting with them. They live up there in stores, Connecticut. And I was visiting with them over Thanksgiving and she gave me a full run down on the incoming first year class for the women's team. She knows exactly where they went to high school, what they're majoring in. <laughs> and I mean, she even already has all of the, the, the young season stats memorized and, and readily available. So I, 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 I couldn't talk. We couldn't talk to a Yukon Husky without at least giving a little bit of credit to my mother-in-law. Actually, I think Manisha is relatively new to uh, the University of Connecticut. She spent most of her career at the University of Massachusetts, but certainly she's entering a serious basketball culture, especially women's basketball. By the way, the, your in-laws have like a framed picture over the fireplace mantle of Gino Oriema. Uh, not quite to that level, but <laughs> we here, I, I know more about Gino than I know about most people who are in college coaching. So... Yeah, I think Manisha's book, The Slave Cause, will be the definitive book on the abolitionist movement for a long time. I actually just read a review of it last night in the Journal of American History by Marcus Rediger, the historian of whiteness, and he basically said the same thing. You should also know it's on the long list of finalists, or it was on the long list of finalists for the National Book Award. So I think this book, and we'll talk to Manisha about this, we'll, we'll, we'll have fun with her a little bit. I think it's going to make a, uh, for a great holiday gift for that serious history buff in your life. Before we get to our story and our interview, however, I just wanted to pause here and make a public service announcement about some historians who are doing some modern day abolitionist work. Some of you may be familiar with the group Historians Against Slavery. You can learn more about them at historiansagainstslavery.org. This is a community of scholar activists who contribute research and historical context to today's anti-slavery movements in order to inspire and inform activism and to develop collaborations that empower such efforts. Their website has a book series, or at least information on a book series, a speakers bureau, and a lot of good stuff about the role that historical thinking might play in helping to, quote unquote, make slavery history. So go check it out. 
Thanks for that, John. We will get to our interview with Manisha Sinha in a few minutes. But first, you have some historical reflections on the intersection of the slave cause with the Bible cause. The American Bible Society, the largest and wealthiest Christian benevolent and reformed society in antebellum America, had a long history of opposition to slavery. Many of the founders of the American Bible Society were also involved in associations and societies to end slavery in the United States. As anti-slavery became an important moral and political issue in the country, the American Bible Society developed strong ties with the American Colonization Society. The goal of the American Colonization Society was to emancipate American slaves and unite them with free blacks in Liberia, West Africa. The American Colonization Society was founded in 1816, the same year of the American Bible Society's founding, and the Bible Society frequently sent Bibles to Liberia to support the work of the Colonization Society. Anti-slavery forces in America, particularly those who favored the immediate abolition of slavery, did not think the American Bible Society was doing enough to bring Bibles to slaves. The Bible Society was taken to task at the first meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1834. The American Anti-Slavery Society included some of the leading abolitionists in the United States, including William Lloyd Garrison and Arthur Tappan. Up until this point, the American Bible Society did not have an official policy on the distribution of Bibles to enslaved men and women. According to the Society's Constitution, the Bible should be distributed without note or comment to anyone who could read it, and this work then must be carried out by local American Bible Society auxiliary agencies operating in local communities across the country. Because many Bible Society auxiliaries in the South were governed by slaveholders who were not interested in having their slaves exposed to the message of liberty and freedom that, according to the anti-slavery forces of the North, was taught in the Bible, the leaders of the American Anti-Slavery Society pressed the American Bible Society to distribute Bibles directly to slaves. In order to encourage a move in this direction, the American Anti-Slavery Society offered the Bible Society $5,000 to make sure that, as they put it, every colored family in the United States be furnished with a copy of the Bible. Lewis Tappan, a founder of the American Bible Society, suggested that the men of the American Anti-Slavery Society raise an additional $30,000 to help the Bible Society accomplish this task. Almost immediately, the members of the Anti-Slavery Society present at the meeting committed an additional $14,500 to the cause. By the end of the first annual meeting, for reasons that are unclear in the historical record, the amount of money to be raised was reduced to $20,000, but an additional stipulation was added. Namely, the American Bible Society would need to accomplish the task of supplying all the slaves with Bibles in a period of two years. If the Bible Society could come close to providing every white American with a copy of the Bible, as they did during their two-year general supply, which they conducted between 1829 and 1831, 
the leaders of the anti-slavery society were confident that it could do the same thing among the enslaved families of the South. Shortly after the first annual meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in May 1834, the society continued to push the Bible Society to accept its lucrative offer. It criticized the Bible Society's general supply for failing to include slaves, which the leadership of the Anti-Slavery Society estimated to represent one-sixth of American families. The Anti-Slavery Society also saw the Bible as a means by which slaves might learn how to read. Such an argument challenged the American Bible Society belief that the Bible was only useful to those who were already literate. We do not say, teach them to read and then we will give them a Bible, the Anti-Slavery Society argued. But rather, here are Bibles which they may have to read. The Anti-Slavery Society challenged every auxiliary Bible society to place, quote, one Bible in the hands of every five slaves. And then at length, they added, we shall see how much regard they have to the command of the Savior to carry the gospel to every creature, unquote. Moreover, if the Bible could find a place on a southern plantation and the slaves read it and acted on its message, it would inevitably force slaveholders to admit that the Bible does not condone the institution of slavery. The American Bible Society responded quickly to the American Anti-Slavery Society's challenge. Its Committee on Distribution thanked the Anti-Slavery Society for the financial gift and affirmed its commitment to distributing the Bible, quote, among their fellow destitute fellow men of every name and nation, wherever they can be reached, unquote. But the men of the committee also concluded that they were bound by the American Bible Society's constitution to keep the primary burden of distribution on the auxiliaries. The American Bible Society wanted to make it clear that its decision did not mean that it was indifferent to the duty of furnishing the Bible to the slave. It would remain more than willing to, quote, urge the auxiliaries to get the Bible in the hands of slaves, unquote. But in the end, the society was constitutionally bound to let the auxiliaries, quote, act as they judge most wise in their circumstances, unquote. Finally, the American Bible Society affirmed that it distributed many thousands of Bibles to auxiliaries in the slaveholding South, and many of them did end up in the hands of the enslaved. Although it was doubtful that any of the slaves who received the Bible could read, and few of their masters had any interest in teaching them. The American Bible Society's response drew widespread criticism from the anti-slavery community. In 1849, another anti-slavery society, the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, invited a fugitive slave from Kentucky named Henry Bibb to address its annual meeting in New York. Bibb's speech echoed familiar themes. He noted that, quote, the Bible Society had not done all that it might have done, unquote to bring Bibles to the enslaved population. Instead, it had given slaves what he called the go-by. 
Bibb made it clear to the philanthropists in attendance at the meeting that the leaders of several American Bible Society auxiliaries in Kentucky were slaveholders. In fact, the man who sold him to New Orleans and in the process separated him from his family was the secretary of the American Bible Society auxiliary in his county. The American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society decided to throw most of its support then behind the American Missionary Society. This was an organization that it believed was making a systematic effort to get Bibles and tracts to slaves. The criticism drew stronger as the Civil War drew closer. At an anti-slavery rally in Ravenna, Ohio, the attendees listed the American Bible Society as one of the country's benevolent organizations that, quote, in consequence of the countenance and support they give to American slavery are unworthy of confidence and support of American Christians, unquote. An abolitionist in Edgartown, Massachusetts, had read about the Bible Society's refusal to accept the money of the American Anti-Slavery Society and demanded to know why the Bible Society did not accept this funding. And the hits kept coming. A correspondent to a black newspaper wrote to expose the trickery, duplicity with pro-slavery, and untruthfulness of the American Bible Society. In our opinion... This correspondent said, this association is just one of the many pious shames of the day, a whited sepulcher, beautiful to outward seeming, but within full of uncleanliness. We cannot see how any man believing that the Bible is the word of God and designed by the almighty for all his creatures can give money to a society guilty of such partiality and hypocrisy, unquote. Through it all, the American Bible Society held its ground. It would refuse to distribute Bibles directly to slaves. The relationship between the Bible cause and the slave cause was a very difficult one. We are thrilled today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have Manisha Sinha with us from the University of Connecticut. She is the author of the magnificent The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, out with Yale University Press. Manisha, thanks for taking some time to be with us here on the program today. Thank you for having me. Good. Tell us now, tell us a little bit about your your sort of angle here as you think about abolitionism. You've you've written a sort of sort of synthetic overview which will probably go down as uh, for a long time as the definitive book on abolitionism. But I was I was actually talking to my students today in class and and getting them to think about how a historian situates their work among the work of other historians since we're always working within that community. Your book in the introduction you say that the slave's cause rejects conventional divisions between slave resistance and anti-slavery activism. And then later you write that the, quote, insidious divide between white thought and black activism is both racialist and inaccurate. Elaborate a little bit more on this. Help our listeners know how you're positioning your story about abolitionism vis-a-vis what many 
you know, historians are writing today or maybe what some of our listeners learned in, in school? Yes, yeah, so I, I set out to write a comprehensive history of abolition, mainly because I was dissatisfied with the way in which abolitionists were portrayed in U.S. history, textbooks and, you know, books that did not necessarily deal with abolition. And the field itself was very fragmented. You had a lot of literature on abolitionists looking at different groups, different parts of the movement. And what you didn't have was an an overview of the of the movement as a radical social movement. And that's what I set out to do. I tried to write a movement history of the abolition movement. And I found myself not just writing a synthesis, but going back to a lot of the primary sources, doing a lot of research to sort of bring to light some forgotten characters and, and forgotten people in the movement. So the first thing I did was to just stretch chronologically the boundaries of the movement back to the revolutionary era. And the second thing that I think I tried to do was to really center the role of African Americans in the movement. For a long time, abolition was mainly seen as a northern white middle class movement who saw sort of and most abolitionists were seen as people who who viewed African-Americans as sort of objects of their benevolence. And despite the fact that African-Americans had been writing histories of black abolitionists for the longest time, much of that material was ghettoized. So I began with this purpose. But as I wrote the book, I realized that in order to fully recover the significance of African-Americans in the movement, one did not just need to add them on to this movement. We had to really understand how their presence sort of changed and shaped the movement. So the first thing I I, I hit upon, which I think um, even many historians of black abolitionists had neglected, was the role of the enslaved themselves in feeding into the movement, both in terms of slave rebellions, but also what acquires a lot of importance in the pre-Civil War era, which is, of course, the fugitive slave issue. You know, as I write in the book, you know, in the United States, unlike, let's say, a place like Britain, you know, slavery and abolition are proximate. They're very close. And there, there is a stream of fugitive slaves who feed into the movement and shape it. So I argue that, you know, slave resistance should not be seen as something separate or different than abolitionists, but it should be seen as constitutive of the movement. I also discovered that many white abolitionists were inspired by instances of rebellion and resistance. So, you know, in a way, it sort of flips the common understanding, which, of course, slaveholders uh, self-interestedly claimed, which is to say that their slaves were content, but there were these kind of outside agitators, abolitionists, who tried to meddle in slavery and and, and inspired instances uh, of rebellion resistance. In fact, I found the opposite to be the case. And I think there are a few British historians who had looked at how certain slave rebellions in the Caribbean contributed to, um, you know, the radicalization of the abolition movement. But even they, I think, had not done justice to how abolitionist thought, for instance, was molded by instances of slave rebellion. So the first known call for immediatism issued by a British Quaker abolitionist woman, Elizabeth Herrick, is something that most anti-slavery historians know about. Uh, Her pamphlet, Immediate Not Gradual Abolition, 
But what they neglect to to mention and what I discovered as I read the pamphlet was that at the back, she has a huge defense of the Demerara Slave Rebellion. That that is where she is being inspired. You know, that that, that instance of rebellion is something that, that sort of inspired her to issue the call for immediatism. So that was one sort of argument in the book that I think is 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 new and original to it. The second is that when historians of abolition have looked at African Americans, they tend to look at them as sort of grassroots activists. You know, that they experienced slavery, they ran away from slavery, they voted with their feet, and all that is of course true and important. But what we also need to understand that African Americans are contributing towards the ideology of abolition. And, and that's what I call a racialist divide. Now, it's not as if everyone's done that. You know, there have been a handful of historians, most significantly, most recently, John Stauffer, David Blight, and sometimes earlier black historians who took black abolitionist thought seriously, who have looked at this, but they did not really, I think, show the overall impact of black thought on the movement. So, for instance... I found that black abolitionist criticism of the pseudoscience of race, of scientific racism, was really important in pushing the abolitionist movement more towards its goal of of racial egalitarianism. And that was an intellectual contribution. It was not simply a matter of uh, sort of running away from slavery or even taking up arms against slavery, literally. And there were other instances, you know, we all know of Garrison's famous condemnation of the U.S. Constitution as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. And I found in my research that actually he had been preceded by a black abolitionist by the name of James W.C. Pennington, who made this claim in regard to the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution. And clearly Garrison got it from them. So the narrative that we had was, yes, white abolitionists were influenced by African Americans, mainly because they rejected colonization, this plan to repatriate African Americans back to Africa. But I argue in the book that the intellectual and the theoretical influence of black abolitionism on the movement is ongoing and that it continues right down to the Civil War. So, yes, the book builds on some previous scholarship, but I also think it takes it into new directions. No, absolutely. And forgive me for calling this a synthesis. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of... uh, archival research in this book and so forth. Um, so when I said synthesis, I wasn't necessarily uh, saying that it wasn't rooted in, in in some of this definitely archival material. So yeah, excellent, excellent. So if I can jump in here, you, you divide the history of abolitionism in the United States and the transatlantic world into a first wave and a second wave. Can you briefly explain the difference between those two waves and how that might influence the way we think about abolitionism when we teach early America? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because as I said earlier, when I started writing the book, I was going to do exactly what most historians of abolition had done, which was to concentrate on the sort of three decades before the Civil War, the sort of pre-Civil War period when you have the the sort of second wave of abolition with the rise of militant black abolitionism in the 1820s and then uh, Garrison in the 1830s. But as I I wrote this, I found that most of these uh, abolitionists, black and white, were constantly referring to an earlier generation of abolitionists, many of them Quakers, many of them who had been involved in the struggle 
uh, against the African slave trade and some who had been involved in the fight for uh, emancipation in the northern states. And I realized that it would actually be important to sort of trace this earlier wave, this first wave during the revolutionary era, to just sort of trace some of the continuities and some of the change over time in the abolition movement. And I found myself as a 19th century historian going right back to the colonial era and discovering these long forgotten black writers, long forgotten Quaker abolitionists. And the caricature of many of these abolitionists, especially the Quakers, was that, you know, they were they were relatively conservative, that unlike the sort of radical interracial phase in the antebellum period, most of them did not believe in racial equality. And indeed, many of their organizations were did not include African-Americans, uh, not by prohibition, but there seems to be by form and literally that there were no African-Americans in some of these earlier abolition societies. The only prohibition they tended to have were against slaveholders if they had one. Some didn't even have that prohibition. But for instance, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society did not allow slaveholders to join the society. But I, I found that that, that it, it's not enough to, to just say that, that in fact you could trace some interracial cooperation even in this period, despite this fact mm-hmm. that early black leaders in Philadelphia were very much in sync with and, in, and cooperating with Quaker abolitionists and, and bringing to their attention instances of wrongful enslavement, instances of fugitives being forcibly taken from Pennsylvania back to slave states. And, you know, when you when I sort of uncovered this this earlier story, I realized that one has to look at the abolition movement as sort of originating in this period and as sort of developing, uh, as, as I said, the first wave, which sort of ends with the, the abolition of the slave trade and emancipation in the North, right. but does not totally die off. I mean, throughout the 1820s, that what I call the neglected period of abolition, you still have Quakers and black abolitionists sort of carrying the torch. And then, of course, it crests again with the second wave. So what I found is that the abolition movement pretty much existed as a movement throughout the history of the Republic, of the American Republic, right up from the Revolution to the Civil War. And that was the story that I wanted to tell. And I divided it between first and second wave, mainly because despite the continuities that I see, some of the organizations are different. You know, many of those early organizations die off. The American Convention of Abolition Societies, which was sort of central organization, kind of dies off. And you have the rise of new, new, new societies under Garrison and others. And and so I thought the, the two waves analogy worked well, even though I did want to emphasize in the book continuity as much as change sure yeah. as, as an 18th century historian you often don't you often don't think of that continuity in many ways so I think your book does a great job of showing the differences but at the same time again showing the, the continuity between the 18th and 19th century on these questions let's let's talk a little bit Manisha about women and the abolitionist movement in chapter nine of the book which you title the woman question you start or very early in the chapter you have this question quote, this sort of very revealing quote, I think, from the Southern slaveholder, John Henry Hammond, who says that women, quote, 
unsex themselves to carry on this horrid warfare against slaveholders, unquote. That's one of those quotes, I think, that the historian comes across in the archives or in published writing somewhere and, and gets very excited about and says, wow, I can really run with this quote because it's so revealing of the point that I'm trying to make in my, in my argument. What did Hammond mean by this? And maybe, maybe when you answer, you also argue in this chapter that many of the female abolitionists were not actually sort of middle-class reformers, but they actually came from more humble backgrounds. So maybe you can elaborate for a few minutes on the, on the role of women in the abolitionist movement in the early 19th century. Yeah, so, you know, this was one part of the movement that that fascinated me, mainly because women were such important foot soldiers in the movement. They were important writers in the movement right from the start. They are playing a fairly large role in this movement at a time when women are considered to be these sort of private domestic creatures. And, you know, certainly Victorian gender ideology did not lend itself to women's activism. Right, right. So so that story fascinated me. And I think for a lot of Southern slaveholders like Hammond, who I studied actually for my first book, and that quote actually stuck with me from when I wrote the first one. Okay, uh, okay. But... Um, but, uh, but, you know, a lot, a lot of Southern slaveholders really did view the abolition movement as an affront, not just to all good society, but also to divine law and to natural law. And then their notion of nature and what is the rightful place of, of the different genders and the different races. So, you know, Hammond and many of the others viewed the abolition movement as this sort of radical, artificial, unnatural movement where, you know, women unsex themselves by, you know, taking on activist public roles and in condemning slavery, where the men who are the white hypocritical men are effeminate. And and then blacks are, are up are uppity, so all sort of uh, traitors to their to their natural racial and gender traits. That was an argument that slaveholders made pretty consistently about the abolitionist movement. But you know, it it allowed me to 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 sort of uh, and they in fact when they looked at abol- I should also mention when they looked at abolitionist petitions and some of them were you know petitions in fact most of them women outside men. And many of them said in Congress, why should we even look at these petitions? These these women are not even citizens, right? They're not voting citizens. Right. Uh, or if they were signed by blacks, they certainly did not want to entertain them. So really, the abolition movement represented an affront to them. But for me, what was more important to see was that the abolition movement you know, reveals its radical face by giving birth to, to other radical passions like the women's rights movement. So one can really trace the trajectory of the um, uh, 19th century women's rights movement to the abolition movement. You know, a lot of the women who became active in the abolition movement, like Lucretia Mott, who was uh, somewhat of a mentor to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, like Lucy Stone, Abby Kelly Foster, you know, uh, Sojourner Truth. A lot of these women received their first political education in movement formation, in organizing, in petitioning, in holding conventions. 
uh, putting out newspapers, pamphlets within the abolition movement. And you can really see the women's rights movement sort of emerge out of the abolition movement because it's a source of controversy within abolition, whether, you know, women should be treated equally in terms of voting and office holding within the movement. So... It was important for me to tell that story. And, you know, there, there, there were times when the book tended to get too big because I wanted to, in fact, sort of recover all its, all its facets. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it is comprehensive, Manisha, <laughs> which, in a good way. <laughs> let's move on a little bit. Let's move in, into the Civil War era. And let's think about or help us think about the relationship between especially the black abolitionists, but abolitionism generally, and Abraham Lincoln? Because you make an argument there. It's an argument I've seen before, but I think you you sort of nuance it in a very interesting way about the role or the influence that abolitionists had on Lincoln, especially during the course of the war on the Emancipation Proclamation and so forth. Yes, I mean, this was an important point for me to make. And, you know, the book itself is so large that I I found myself stopping actually at 1860, even though I hint at what's happening during the war. Uh, I, I, you know, there was a point when when it just became too big and actually I'm now writing a book on the Civil War and Reconstruction. But this was an important topic for me because I had earlier written an essay on Lincoln and abolitionists for a book of essays edited by Eric Foner before he published his his biography of Lincoln. And in that essay and in my book, I, I argue that, you know, Lincoln was genuinely anti-slavery. You could make that argument, you know, even sure, when sure. he had nothing to gain politically right. by taking an anti-slavery stance. And I think that that is well recorded. But he was not an activist. He was not an abolitionist. And and clearly his loyalty to the Union, to the Constitution, they were competing political loyalties for him. You know, somebody like Garrison could say, well, if the Constitution is pro-slavery, then I'll just burn it, you know, and and you should do away with it. But, you know, Lincoln, as a moderate anti-slavery politician, would not do that. For him, these were competing loyalties. And you can see him pretty much throughout the antebellum era trying to reconcile these competing loyalties to the Union, to the Constitution, which for as a lawyer was important for him, of course, and and also to his genuine anti-slavery beliefs. I think that changes during the Civil War, mainly because... It's a it's a revolutionary situation, and, and slaveholders, by sort of committing treason, taking up arms against the Union, are no longer within that that constitutional framework, and right. it allows Lincoln, I think, to take anti-slavery positions far in advance of his positions in the in the antebellum era, and I argue in the book that abolitionists play an important role in influencing Lincoln. You know, not just in terms of, you know, him meeting with with abolitionists, including African-American abolitionists like Douglas, but he seems to go out of his way to listen to them, whether it's Wendell Phillips lecturing in Washington, D.C., or, or read their literature. And then I found that, you know, he actually says sometimes, you know, he's rather, uh, he's a modest man. And even though he has issued the Emancipation Proclamation eventually and fights for the 13th Amendment, you know, he says, you know, I, I have really not done anything. It's really men like Garrison and the Union Army that has 
carried forth emancipation to the South. Right. Uh, or he says things like, you know, every schoolboy knows the name of great abolitionists, the British abolitionists mm-hmm. like Wilberforce, but no one will remember the names of those who fought against him, you know, saying that the abolitionists were on the right side of history, even though their activism probably was a standard for him to to sort of aspire to virtually, you know, because he goes from being a non-extensionist and a colonizationist, actually, to being an abolitionist, to eventually supporting black rights, uh, limited black, you know, suffrage. So that's an evolution, you know, which I think actually is, is a mark of his greatness, that he was able to evolve in that direction. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that the notion that somehow the war came and then you had emancipation, because slaveholders are militarily defeated, that that just happened on its own because of the exigencies of war, or what people call military emancipation, is really quite wrong-headed. Because if you look at the history of slavery and wars and abolition in the Western Hemisphere, you had many wars, including the American Revolutionary War, the War of Independence, when you did not actually have emancipation as a result. As I argue in the book, in order for emancipation to be enacted, it had to be an option. And you had to have a group of people who had been advocating this for a very long time and for that option to be eventually taken up by an anti-slavery person. And so I think Douglas was right when he when he looked at Lincoln and said, you know, Lincoln may not have been an abolitionist, but he was clearly at the head of this anti-slavery movement. And I think Lincoln himself sort of realizes that when he says things like that during the war. So, you know, emancipation is a process that involves, during the war, the Civil War, it involves the president, the Union Army, Congress, certainly radical Republicans with their roots, mind you, in the abolition movement, and abolitionists outside Congress who are agitating for this, men and women, blacks and white. And I think if we understand emancipation in that manner, we can finally appreciate the role of uh, the abolitionists the way I think Lincoln did during sure, the war. Sure, sure. Yeah, that that last part that you just said there, Manisha, with with all of the nuances and all of the different ways of understanding abolition, listeners out there, this is why the book has to be so long because there's so many ways you can think about this, and so many you can t- you take the story in so many directions. Uh, we our time's about up, Manisha, um, but let me let me ask you one final question, and and this is the kind of on the legacy of abolitionism. You note in several places that the cause of abolitionism is an enduring one. And in fact, your your epilogue talks about the abolitionist movement actually explaining, quote unquote, the origins of American democracy. Tell us about the legacy of abolitionism in American life. And what do you mean by abolitionism explaining the roots or the origins of American democracy? You know, this is where I was thinking about the broad political impact of a radical social movement like abolition. And if you look at the origins of what I see as uh, America's experiment, not just in Republican government and, and democracy, but in interracial democracy, you could really trace it right back to the abolition movement. Because the abolitionists are not just fighting against slavery, they are also fighting for black citizenship. They're also fighting against Jim Crow in the North. 
they right. have a vision of American democracy, which is very different than that of the slaveholders' republic in the antebellum era. And I think that is the lasting contribution of the movement, the ways in which it has inspired radicals of other generations to sort of reimagine American democracy, to make it more equitable, more fair, more inclusive. And this notion that somehow, you know, the American Republic is born and democracy just spreads in an uncontested way in, in the sort of linear Whiggish way throughout American history is it, not really true because you've had a lot of contestation over what should be the content of this democracy. And what I think the, the abolitionists sort of bequeath to us, uh, their legacy, is in fact imagining an interracial democracy. It was important for me to to sort of note that most abolitionists, not those who just claim to be anti-slavery in sentiment, you know, and there were a lot of people like that, including some of the founding fathers, but they didn't really do anything against slavery right. and some of slaveholders themselves, uh, but really abolitionists, the activists, that they, that they were not just fighting against something, which was slavery, but they were also visualizing um, a democracy that would be interracial, a, a new vision, literally, for the United States. And to a certain extent, maybe their vision was realized during Reconstruction, though it is overthrown again. And then again, you have the civil rights movement, and you can see how that vision is constantly contested. And and to me, you know, somebody who immigrated to the United States um, feels very much uh, uh, sort of vested in this American project of an interracial democracy. I, I found that fairly inspiring. And I think that is something that we should continue to hold on to, no matter what the political lay of the land may be <laughs> at the yeah. moment. No, it, it is inspiring. And I think I think when when done well, I think history sort of offers us this kind of kind of inspiration, especially movements like the abolitionists, uh, the abolitionist efforts that you write about. We have been talking with Manisha Sinha, the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Manisha, thank you. Listeners, go out there and buy a copy. Buy it as a holiday gift. It would make a wonderful, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it would be a, for, for, uh, for Christians, I don't know if it would be a stocking stuffer. <laughs> Might be a little too heavy for that, but it would definitely be a, it would definitely be a nice gift. Thanks for coming on, Manisha. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And I should mention to you that uh, the paperback, which was scheduled for February, is actually already available. And there's an audio version of the book, too, for Great. those who might find the book too heavy. Absolutely. So that, so, that would be a stocking stuff, yeah, right? Audio the version. audio version. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, once again, Drew, another great interview. Manisha's book is just phenomenal, as we've already said. It's just such a comprehensive overview of the abolitionist movement. I'm going to be going back to that book over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I really love those books that tend to to just dramatically change the conversation. And it sounds like she's really is accomplishing that with the way it's being received. Yeah, we, we, we're privileged to have her on the show. I appreciated her taking the time to be with us. Well, I think that's a wrap, Drew. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Not, not much more to add to that. Well, this is our last 
major episode here before the holiday season. So happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening this year. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate or review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Manisha Sinha. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is, as always, John Fia.